0: I was poking around online a while back looking for people who had faced difficult dilemmas. And I found one guy who at the time was working for a company uh, where he was in charge of hiring. And he had two choices. On the one hand, he had an individual that he thought was eminently qualified and just perfect for the job. But on the other hand, he had one of his siblings who, though, you know, moderately okay for the job, didn't have anywhere near the qualifications of the other guy. But to complicate the matter, the sibling, apparently a couple of years prior to, had really gone to bat for this guy, and he kind of owed him one. And he was talking in this, uh, in this post, and he said he felt, very, felt the dilemma, because it was between two very good things. I could either do my job, or I can return the favor for a sibling, but I can't have both. And I suddenly thought to myself, now that sounds familiar. Because two weeks ago, we dove into the deep end of this topic of justification by grace and looked at all that powerful vocabulary that Paul uses to describe it. And what we didn't get to then, though, was something that I think needs to be highlighted. And that is what what I would call the elegance of justification. The dictionary says elegance means something that is pleasingly ingenious. That's a great description. Because what, he, what Paul says in verse 26 is, is that justification allowed God, look at the phrase, to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See if I can put it this way. God has his own dilemma. <laughs> that is, he has to be just. If he stops being just, he's no longer God. But if he's merciful as well, he longs to be the justifier of his people. But given man's sinfulness, how can he have both? Does God punish the sin and sort of lose the sense of mercy? Or does he just ignore the sin to let us into heaven and thereby be unjust? But of course, to sum up our last sermon in Romans, we found that God allows substitutes, does he not? On the cross, Jesus comes along and upholds both justice and mercy. Why? Because he inflicts the punishment on himself. So the debt's been paid. And in doing so, he now has fellowship with us in a way in which he can display his mercy. So law and love, justice and mercy are both fully displayed on the cross. And I find that, that sort of solution to God's dilemma quite elegant. It's pleasingly ingenious. And it's the very thing that we declare when we de- proclaim the good news. And it's also what changes everything which is what I'm suggesting Paul goes into in verses 27 to 31, because then he's going to say, but there is a lifestyle that is commended to those who have come to discover and understand justification. In other words, last week we saw the facts of the gospel, uh, This or two weeks ago, this week we're going to see the effect of that gospel on us in the way we see the world. I want to unpack it looking at three phrases this morning. First of all, I want to consider the works of the, of the law I want to look at the tyranny of enough and then consider this question about the God of the Gentiles. Let's jump into this. First of all, the works of the law. Verse 27 opens up with a rhetorical question. Then what becomes of our boasting? What is Paul talking about when he says boasting? Well, he's talking about self-glorifying, bragging, yes, but he's also doing something a little more subtle than that. Because boasting in the Bible's understanding can include anything that someone does to distinguish themselves from the grimy masses, right? And we're gonna talk a whole lot more about this next week. But when you boast in something, that's what gives you confidence to go out and face the day. It's the thing that you look at and say, I am somebody because I have this. So it defines you, it gives you a sense of self worth. Paul has come to believe that justification by grace through faith is the only thing that can give him true self-worth. Then, in verse 28, he sets up a contrast. Look at it. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now look, that is a power-packed phrase. In the last 50 years of theological history, we've done a lot of arguing over that, but it's really not that complicated to get it on the face of it. Because the works of the law are simply what distinguished a Jewish person with an identity and a sense of self-worth. They were things like the Jewish food laws. They were uh, circumcision codes. They were feast days, calendar days that people faced. And, of course, Paul, by the way, knows exactly what he's talking about because in other places in the New Testament, he describes his career as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, a Jewish person prior to becoming a uh, Christian, it's Philippians 3.5. He says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason to have confidence in the flesh, I got more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Who talks like that? I'm an Oxfordian of Oxfordians, right? As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying the works of the law have made me unique. They were his righteousness, his identity. And even more than that, you'll understand, this is not just a Jewish thing. Remember, all the way back in Romans 1-3, Paul was describing the Gentile world, remember, as insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Same word from chapter 3. It led a commentator John Stott to say, in fact, all human beings are inveterate boasters. Boasting, he said, this is a great sentence, Is this, boasting is the language of our fallen self-centeredness. Ooh, that's really good. Okay, so follow Paul's point. Something happened on the cross of Jesus to justify him apart from all those things that used to define him. So that in Galatians 6.14, Paul can say this, but far be it from me to boast in anything except for the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. You See the point? In other words, he's saying we only stop boasting when we come to realize that all of my best achievements have done nothing to justify me. Tim Keller says that offering up your, um, your best achievements to God are a little bit like a drowning man holding a handful of hundred dollar bills in his hands and saying, but wait, I have money. I'm going to do you a bit of good in the fact of your drowning. Okay. So the works of the law. Now bear with me for a second, because I realize that this is heady theological stuff to dive into early on a Sunday morning. But I want you to know that I'm always in search for resources that I can get my hands on that help us unpack this and understand what it means. And every now and then you come across a resource that just nails where you're going with this. And I would like to very warmly commend to you a wonderful little book by David Zahl, Z-A-H-L, called Seculosity. And it's a powerful sort of deep dive into the doctrine of justification not so much for the theology portion, but for the way that that theology applies to our everyday lives. And here's how he does it. He invites the reader to replace the word justify with the word enough. Bear with me. This is what he says. He says, listen carefully, and you'll hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to our anxiety, our loneliness, our exhaustion, and the division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would finally be ours. That is, if we got enough, we would be enough. And suddenly, when I read that paragraph, I thought, this is what Paul's talking about. (laughs) Boasting in the works of the law is the modern equivalent of striving to be enough. Now granted, you might this morning not consider yourself to be very religious. That's okay, you've come to the right place. But every one of us has a sense of knowing what it's like to feel like you are not enough or that you are. And so when Paul describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's employing the language of enough. I am enough because of my pedigree, because of my vocation, because of my traditions. But of course, but what we're trying to challenge here is, is, that, is enough enough? There is a tyranny that is exercised when we're trying to consider what it means to be enough. And what Zal suggests in his wonderful little book is, is that this is what is driving you every single day. And so the book is, the, the, the main section of the book is says Zal categorizes all these ways in our particular cultural moment that we thirst after enough. He says, we may be sleeping in on Sunday mornings in greater numbers, but we have never been more pious <laughs> and we've got the anxiety to prove it. We're seldom not in church. I will not help you think differently about the work day. Look, put it in Paul's terms. What are our present day works of the law that we go to for enough? That's the question. Now, look, I'm going to go through about seven of Zal's examples, right? And I just want them to rush past you because i got to hurry through them. But your assignment for this week is to park on one or two of them and just kind of see how you're, how you're doing with that, right? Number one. Zal mentions busyness. You know, there was a time in the past when you would ask somebody, how are you doing? And it was culturally appropriate to give the, the sort of check answer, fine. But these days, it's far more likely to have someone look at you and say, oh, I am so busy. In other words, busyness has almost become this spiritual barometer for being enough. The more frantic, The more, the more frantic I am, the more pity that I hope to elicit from those people around me. There's a sense of validation you feel when you're exhausted, right? I think one of the greatest tragedies of modern life is that busy people are not actually lying. Most families I know are balancing two careers, 2.3 well-adjusted children, a t-ball team, a travel baseball schedule, aging parents who need them more than ever, All all the while we at the church asking you to serve more. But what's crazy is I realize that most of us, we just prefer it that way. I'm, I do what I'm learning. Nothing makes me more uncomfortable than my own idleness. We celebrate all those people who are killing it in business, right? And it's a well-catalogued fact that it's our dedication to busyness that lies at the root of our skyrocketing loneliness, anxiety, and fatigue. And tragically, the people that are smarting from it the most are our children, Spent about 25 years watching college students go after sometimes two, many times three different majors so they can make themselves more marketable upon graduation. Marketable. Isn't that a great word for righteousness? It's out there. Secondly, we find another uh, another, uh, uh, way of enoughness is parenting. You have a child and it's the most wonderful and terrifying thing that's ever happened to you, but little wonder, since it's so great, that we pour so much of our identity into their well-being. But if you're like me, I've come to realize that one of the reasons I panic so much about my child and loving them well is simply because it's a convenient way for me to discharge my anxiety about them being good kids. Listen to Zoll. Zoll says, The New Yorker parried this reality hilariously in a satirical report. This is a satire. It said, quote, a recent study has shown that if American parents read one more long-form think piece about parenting, they will go absolutely crazy, which is another way of saying that the more opinions that we absorb about how to parent well, the more expectations we find that we and our children are failing to meet, and the more ways that we discover that we're doing it wrong. You ever feel that way? You walk around people that you deem to be great parents and it always seems like they've got advice, and you have, this <laughs> you have this disgust that kind of pulls up inside of you about it. Yeah, parenting can be its own form of justification. Thirdly, technology. Technology can be the same form of justification. And I'm not even sure I need to demonstrate this. Although all invites you, if you wonder whether you're infected with it, to try a little thought experiment the next time you're at a dinner party. Announce to the people at your dinner party that finally, after much reflection, you've decided to get rid of your smartphone and opt instead for a flip phone and see the horror in people's faces. Oh my, word. what are you gonna start stockpiling weapons for the zombie apocalypse now, you freak? No one's gonna do that, really. Now look, I realize that for a lot of people, we look at lack of technology as if it's a sign of weakness. And there's a way to sort of baptize your, your, your anti-technology through luddism. You know, luddism is that belief uh, that all technology under any form is wrong in and of itself. That can't be right, technology's done wonderful things, the internet notwithstanding. Just talk to some of our cancer survivors at our congregation and they'll tell you how great modern technology is. But it really is worth considering in it, how much better do I feel when I'm connected to what? What am I really connected to when I'm online? What exactly is that serving in me? Could it be that it's justifying me, approving of me? Next, what about work? Work's a big one. Zoll starts with a story. He says, this is a true story. In 1965, Congress held a lengthy hearing to discuss a looming 20-hour work week. Hmm. According to their estimates, the rapidly expanding automation of the day meant that by the year 2000, Americans would have more free time than they would know what to do with. Summer, summer camps would have to stay open year-round. People would be taking so many vacation trips that our national infrastructure would need to be completely overhauled to accommodate the traffic. It's hilarious, isn't it, compared to where we found ourselves? But isn't it interesting that the statistics also show that for some reason, we even prefer jobs that keep us that frantic over other jobs less stressful that pay the same money. Clearly, it seems that there's something serving us in our jobs that are more than just a paycheck, maybe. I've come to believe that we dive into work much like because of technology. It becomes a distraction for those unsettling realities we have to face when we confront our own identities. A number of years ago, I read a wonderful little book called The Now Principle by a New York uh, psychiatrist who was trying to help his clients with procrastination and over and over again, he tried to get them to exercise what he calls the now principle. When there's a task that's presented to you and you can do it in two minutes, do it now. Do it now immediately. But he said every time he would talk to them through this principle, he met this brick wall of their shame. That what was keeping them from being able to sort of get to the next thing was this sort of voice inside their head that was condemning them. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our work can actually be all kinds of that business. How about another one? What about leisure? Um, Isn't it amazing how evangelistic somebody gets when they start working out? Zal actually related a joke that I've heard before uh, (laughs) uh, where someone says, do you know how you can tell when someone started doing CrossFit? Don't worry, they'll tell you. I thought it was funny too. In other words, what happens is, is Zal goes on to talk about this a funnier bit that I also saw online as well. that was a parody of modern workout uh, routines, and apparently it was a fictional thing. Nike has come out now with something called the Nike Run Logic Plus, which tells a person not only how far they're running, but why they're running as well. This is how the fake ad went. The Nike Run Logic Plus. Logic Plus pinpoints the desperate psychological demons at the root of your exercise routine. The potential motivations that the app lists are, number one, constant shame, number two, still single, and and number three, disappointed father. Before they shared this mock testimonial of one user who said, I'm super afraid that my friends don't really like me, but I ran 27 miles today, now I feel nothing. The point is, even when we're trying to relax, right, we're doing it more and more on the basis of some plan, some regimen, some discipline, and we got a phone on our watch, right, that tells us everything that we're doing wrong. And what Zaw basically says, he's like, did you ever remember what it was like to play? We've lost our ability to go play. Play was what you did when you went outside and you made up your own rules that were based out of only your imagination. And, and, and it kept you occupied because you weren't stressed through any of it. I wonder if we're not sort of a good bit worse off. Number six, Zoll identifies food. He opens this chapter talking about food by talking about how hilarious Jim Gaffigan is, comedian Jim Gaffigan, when he's talking about McDonald's. You know, he always says, everybody loves to hate on people that go to McDonald's, but everybody goes, don't we? We still visit it. And what he says is, we have this insatiable attraction to the idea and the lure of food. Do we not? Zoll invites people to think about the last time. He says we talk about food today the same way in which we used to talk about sex. He says, he says the last time you used the word cheat, for instance, was it in reference to a broken vow or to something you ate? He says I wager it's the latter. I mean, think about it. We have a whole thing called foodie culture right now full of people who have taken eating to this exquisite art. I mean, our reality cooking shows are so plentiful, we've got to have a whole TV channel for them. But there's a theology of food, is there not? You know, the answers that you seek in life, they're not at church, but they're down the aisle of your supermarket. The right ingredient mixed the right way, and you can become who you were meant to be use the wrong ones and you got nobody to blame but yourself for your own unhappiness. Look, let's face it, food has become a new tower of Babel. We're climbing up to reach some sort of self-identification that could be a justifying story for our lives. Finally, number seven, this is where it starts to sting. The church can become the same kind of thing. This is how I understand Romans chapter 2. There's a fundamental question we've got to ask. When we look at the nature of our gathering, are we a hospital for sinners or are we a schoolhouse for saints? Now, some of you are saying to yourself, do we have to choose between those? I don't think so. But look... I do think, though, there's something that we ought to examine about ourselves. If when we hear people say we want our church to be a place where even the most broken can be a part, if inside you there's an instinct that says, yeah, 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 but simmer down now because people have to be holy. We're here to make sure people change and that we're doing the right things. And you know what's funny? That's actually probably a true statement. But if that's my first instinct... Is it not possible that I have been infected by this perspective that cares less about the gospel going out and more about having created a venue where I can establish my own enoughness? And you can tell it when your church starts to lean in on the question of changing rather than on the grace that it takes to change. (laughs) Zal mentions a a New Yorker cartoon of a man holding his girlfriend's hand, and he tells her, look, I can't promise I ch- I'll change, but, but I promise that I'll pretend to change. <laughs> Is that a little bit what it's like in church for us? Because if that's what becomes our experience, and maybe we have invested our participation in it with an unhealthy sense of self-justification. Seven things for us to consider, But it leads me to one last question, and this question is a little more self-examining, and it has to do with this phrase, "The God of the Gentiles." Look at verse 28: "For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law." Paul knows that generations of Jesus' followers are going to be tempted to return in any a number of ways to justify themselves. This is a forever temptation. My my, my old mentor, Bebo Elkin, used to say this. He said, we are all in Arminian withdrawal. And Arminian believes that his salvation is somewhat up to them. And we're all trying to get away from that. He's exactly right. So why is Paul so passionate that we get this inside of us? I think here's the reason why. Because Paul knows that we will never see graciousness between people. We will never unite as the people of God We will never begin this long process of healing the hurts that we constantly inflict on one another until we turn aside from the works of the law and embrace Jesus by faith. That's his premise. Let me put it this way. The final way that you can tell if you've been justified is if you begin to experience what Paul is saying where these bridges are being built across racial, economic, and even cultural lines. Don't believe me? Look at verse 30. God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith is going to lead you to get rid of whatever standard you were holding over those people and is going to put you on completely level ground. And it's a level ground that is dominated by joy, So the question I want to leave us with is like, what would it be like to be a congregation like that? It reminded me of uh, that wonderful book that got turned into a movie called The Same Kind of Different as Me from about a decade ago. The story is about a very wealthy art dealer who is dragged into a homeless shelter uh, by his wife in order to serve. Well, one particular man, violent and dangerous by the name of Denver, uh, is befriended by the wife, and the poor husband is virtually forced to like, build a friendship with this guy. But as the story goes on, the wife eventually contracts cancer and is on her deathbed, and the author begins to sit down and realize just exactly what this homeless man's effect on them had been. What had he done? What, what had his wife's love for the two of them done in both of their lives? And he says this in one paragraph. He says, "'The tears began to spill from Denver's eyes. "'I had never seen him weep. "'His tears flowed into the lines in his face "'like rivers of grief. "'And it hit me again how much he had loved my wife. "'She, led by God to deliver mercy and compassion, "'had rescued this wreck of a man "'who, when she fell ill, "'then turned and became her chief intercessor.'" For 19 months, he prayed through the night until dawn and delivered the word of God to our door like a heavenly paper boy. And then he said this one. This was the poetry that moved me. He said, I was so embarrassed that I once thought of myself as superior to him, stooping to sprinkle my wealth and wisdom upon his lowly life. See what he's saying? He's saying there was something about redemption that when it got into me, I looked at this homeless man for which I had zero in common. And I suddenly realized we had everything in common. Do you see what happened? The effect of redemption. Once you begin to understand that in Jesus, at the cross, you are enough. It gives you the right to become an agent of enoughness. In other words, you can begin to answer that voice inside your own head that is constantly telling you that you're not enough. You can look at your spouse who has failed you time and uncountable and say, it's okay, you're enough because Jesus has made you enough. We can look at our children who we pile on and on with more and more expectation and say, no, that's not right. You are enough in Christ. We can say it to our family members who are broken in our relationship with them. We can say it to our neighborhood. We can say it to our church brothers and sisters who we cannot stand when they walk in the door. At the root of the problem is an enoughness problem. It's not that that person won't get their act together. It's an enoughness problem. There's something inside that wonders, am I enough? Look, the goal of wanting to sort of work through justification by grace through faith is ultimately to build a body of people who are agents of enough because justification has rooted itself in there. What would happen, this is your homework, what would happen if we became a community like that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what indeed? You then are going to have to lead us into that because, Lord, only you can bring us into the full realization of that. Father, there's all the works of the law still call us. We still attempt in every turn to build up something that will commend us to you. And it's at the root of all of our rebellion because we do not want to be satisfied in you. So maybe this morning as we partake of your table and eat of your body and drink your blood of all crazy things, we pray that we would walk away full and that you would satisfy us with your goodness. Would you do that?